Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. Today's episode is a very special one for me. I am talking to the legendary Mr. Jeffrey Keady. Mr. Keady is probably best known for his frequent contributions to Emigre, and his essays were always some of my favorite from the publication. But he is also a graphic designer, a type designer, and an educator. He's a graduate of Cranbrook, and since 1985 has been on the faculty at Cal Arts. His work has also been published in places like I and ID and the AIGA Journal. In this conversation, Mr. Keating and I talk about his early interest in design and how he met Rudy Vanderlands, the editor and publisher of Immigre, and, and how Rudy got him to start writing for the magazine, how the design discourse has changed over the course of his career from the mid-80s when design was still seen as commercial art and there really wasn't a discourse through the 90s kind of surge in criticism and theory uh, into blogs and into our current discourse. We also talk about the differences between writing theory and criticism and about process, as well as this theory that he has that graphic design as we often define it is an invention of the 20th century that doesn't really exist anymore. It's a, a really interesting part of the conversation that really got me thinking about a lot of things in a different way. Like I said when I started, uh, when I started reading design writing and discovered Immigre, Mr. Keady quickly became one of my favorite writers. His writing was smart, it was witty, it was direct, and it was the type of design writing that I wanted more of. It was the type of design writing that I wanted to try to write, and it's still the type of writing that I'm, I'm very often drawn to. So I was so happy to spend this time to talk with him about his work and his writing, as well as the state of contemporary design criticism. He is truly a legend and a central voice in design criticism, so I don't want to waste any more time. This was a really fun one. Here is my conversation with the one and only Mr. Jeffrey Keady. I wanted to start talking to you because for a long time, up until, you know, embarrassingly recently, uh, I knew you only as a, as a writer and had been reading your work for, for years. And I was curious about kind of in your, in your background, what came first for you, design or, or writing? Oh, design, definitely design. The writing actually came later. I was, my interest was, was in design, not in writing. And I never, I never had any ambition to be a writer. That was not a oh, really? thing. Yeah. 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 I, and I never had any ambition, never any real training to be a writer either. And I don't consider myself a writer as such. No, not really. Oh, and I don't, I don't enjoy it either. I really don't. You don't enjoy writing? No. <laughs> So where so did that? I'd rather design. Much rather design. So okay. So where did the writing start for you then, or where did that come in? Uh, it came in from um, being sort of annoyed and bothered by uh, things other designers, other writers were saying. You know, I would yeah. see, I would see, you know. Um, 
you know, for example, Stephen Heller would write something that was particularly wrong and mm -hmm. didn't make sense. And this is, I'm talking about all the way back, like in the eighties. Yeah. Right? Uh, so, uh, and, and so then that would make me think, oh, geez, you know, this, and then you'd commiserate with your friends and like, did you see, you know, an AIGA journal, what, you know, Heller said about this or that, or, or someone else. Um, but he's an easy target because he's so prolific and continues right. to be, um, but, uh, and, and so I'd see that, and we'd all sort of say, yeah, that's so lame, you know, blah, blah. But then I kind of felt like, and particularly once I started teaching, I felt like, well, I can't just like say, oh, that's lame and that's wrong. I have to answer back. I have to respond basically and say, wait a minute, you've got this wrong. Here's another way to think about it. Okay. And so all of, all of, all of the writing that I did all eighties to the nineties, it was it was idea driven. It's because I had an idea and thoughts and uh, sort of corrections to what I had already seen and read that I wanted to like get back out there. Because it's like you can't you don't get to you don't get to just grumble and complain about some you know people saying things right. in, you know that are wrong unless you sort of respond. So. It was that was the the impetus to write was usually usually I would see something that would just drive me crazy and I think oh yeah that's so wrong you know and then and that would sort of get me and that's actually continued to be the case even sort of post emigrate like when I wrote um, the essay uh, the global style yeah. um, that was the same thing I'd been seeing it and hearing people talk about you know this kind of work and everything and it was just sort of like bothering me and so I I said okay I've got to write something for it of course then since it was um, it was that you know sort of post emigre post internet uh, the the question is oh well okay fine I want to write something but where's it going to be published right and I because when I wrote the global style I thought oh well the perfect place for this really would be slanted because they're kind of like in a way, perpetrators of much of this. Yeah. So, you know, this is the perfect, you know, location for that. So, um, because I come from and I had the sort of experience of, you know, print, you know, writing for print, now writing sort of, you know, post print, post internet, uh, the, there's this issue of who are you writing for? Right. And that's why after Emigrate for a long time, I didn't write much of anything because it's like, well, who am I, who's my audience? Who to, I didn't really, for me, the going on and doing a blog and all that just felt like shouting down a well or something. I yeah. don't know, you know, who am I talking to? Who's listening? Who's even interested? And yep. I was fortunate that with Emigrate, I knew. I knew who my audience was. They knew who I was. If they were reading it and reading me, they were reading it for a particular, you know, they knew what they were getting into. And and uh, it was, back then, it was a, you know, it was a dialogue and a conversation, an ongoing uh, thing that was happening. But uh, post-Emigrate, it was um, very different. You know, there were fewer places to publish in and the question was always who am I talking to and why would I do it so so now every once in a while there's something that I want to write but then the the first big issue is like well where where yeah. who am I writing to where do I publish it so were you was immigrate the first place that you started publishing your writing no I think probably the first 
place I was writing where, uh, you know, again, this is, I mean, there sort of is the internet, but people weren't using it for that so much. Right. Um, uh, it would be like AIGA journal. Oh, okay. And things like that. Very small. And like there was a, there was a AIG, Los Angeles AIGA journal. Like for example, I think when, um, uh, MOCA, the museum of contemporary art in Los Angeles was here and was designed and they hired, um, uh, who did they hire to do the logo? I think it was Pentagram um, to do their logo and identity, whatever. I would like go on there and, and write, you know, about okay. that. Uh, and like, like, oh, thank God you didn't, you know, hire anyone from Los Angeles to design this. Right. Um, so, so things like I, so I think probably started uh, writing there first, but Rudy got interested in me and I started writing for Emigrate because of the typeface in my design. He was oh. interested in my typefaces and my design, not in my writing. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to, to phrase this. So how did, how did that relationship, because I was curious about kind of how you got connected to Emigrate because so much of the writing I've read of you is from that. And in my mind, you're very much connected it, to the immigre kind of group of writers. How did you become a, a, a writer for that? Uh, it started with, um, my connection with Rudy started with, uh, let's see, I think uh, his first issue of Emigre came out, I'm thinking, um, I think I was just graduating, I was in, at Cranbrook and just getting out. And so I'd seen, you know, the first sort of couple of issues and I came out to LA, I was here and it was actually, we did a, um, the, at CalArts, we did a tour of San Francisco. So we took the students up and we went to a bunch of studios and galleries and, you know, like a field trip kind yeah. of thing. And of course we went to Emigre. So we went to Emigre and we looked at their work and sort of talked to them and all that. And then that's when Rudy, you know, said, well, let me, let me see some of your stuff. And he kind of got familiar with my work. Turns out he'd actually seen, um, some of it before. And, uh, he wanted to, um, when he saw the, he saw my work and he saw my typefaces in it okay. and so they were just starting a typeface business. Right. right and so right. he's like, Hey, why don't we, why don't you give me some of your, you know, typefaces and I'll sell them through emigre. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested. In that. Um, so, but that's where, that's where kind of the connection started. But then he, persisted and, and said, no, you should really sell your typeface with us. And so I finally said, okay. And then, um, my then studio mate, Ed fellow said, yeah, but you got to change the name. The name's dumb. So, and he said, well, you got to call it Keedy Sands because like, you know, Gil Sands and all that. Right, and, right, said, right. and if you don't, everyone's going to think, uh, Susanna Lichko designed it because at that time she designed all of their typeface. Right. So, he, so you got to call it Keedy Sands. And so I, I always listen to my elders. And, you know, I, I I said okay, okay, Ed, I'll change it. Kitty Sands, it is, and and so that's how that uh, whole thing started. So in doing that, I think you know, I'm talking to Rudy and Susanna. We sort of got to know each other, and they saw more of my work, and then they interviewed me along with a whole bunch of other, you know, people mm -hmm. and what's going on. And then Rudy and I would talk and this and that. And I forget what the first, 
I think the first thing probably that was published by me and Emigre was probably just an interview I did with Rudy okay. and had a conversation, just like we're doing now. He just said, said, and that was his early format was always interview. Yeah. Um, and so he did an interview with me and then I, I don't know, something out of that, something came up that he wanted to um, write and publish. I think the, the other thing that, maybe people don't realize though a lot of those um essays and emigre that i uh that were written up those were lectures that i gave so oh. i uh, those essays were lectures that i gave you know in europe and the u.s and various places several of them were lectures i gave at cooper um okay. uh, so um and in, so if you like check the little tiny print at the bottom uh a lot of them would be so i'd be working on uh like a lecture that I was going to give somewhere. And then I would write that up as like a, a text essay. And so right. I, would, I would, so I published the essay and then I would give the lecture. Oh, interesting. So were you, this is, this is kind of my last question just to kind of wrap up the kind of personal history. I'm just trying to piece some things together. So how did you, and, and this is a bit of a multi-part question. When you graduated from Cranbrook, did you know that you wanted to teach or kind of how did you get connected to Cal arts? Because it sounds like so much of your writing actually came out of being a teacher and lectures and things. Um, so where did that kind of interest come from? Well, yeah, the writing, I think actually if you are a teacher, you should write and you kind of have to, because it's sort of your job, mm -hmm. you know, that's why they're called academics. I think. Right. I, I don't, I just, I'm annoyed by how many academics there are that don't write and don't lecture and basically don't do anything but teach. Yeah. And so to me, they're not doing their job. Right. You know, their, their job is actually to help make the culture of design. Well, they're not doing their job and they haven't for a long time. And that's why there is no culture of design anymore. <laughs> right. You know, because we've got a bunch of lazy faculty. Essentially. <laughs> yeah. So did you want to be a teacher or how did you start teaching yeah very 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 early i uh i have to go all the way back to the 80s um so uh in the 80s in my undergrad i went to western michigan university which is in kalamazoo michigan and i just went there because that's where i lived i was in i lived in the midwest in battle creek michigan okay. And I couldn't afford <laughs> to go too far because right. I had no money. So, uh, but I went to Western, and as it, as it turns out, I was very lucky because they had a really good design program. I actually went in art, sort of generally kind of uh, went into art. Um, then, then art was like a big blanket sort of thing in a lot of universities. And I also, and I had, and I wanted a university education. So, but when I was at Western, um, it was. It turned out to be a really, really good program. I had a really good instructor there. His name's Bruce Naftel, and uh, I was very kind of impressed by him. And he built this thing in the school called the. Uh, they had a design office and everything. So even though I was in art and doing drawing and painting and all that, and actually photography, uh, just seeing design, I thought, hey, these people really have their shit together. Whereas the artists, not so much. Right. Uh, so I segued into um, design and, you know, and, and I think it was even as an undergrad, just seeing Bruce, how he organized the thing and taught and all that. And I thought that's really cool. I would kind of, you know, maybe 
at some point, maybe when I'm old, maybe I'll teach. That was what I was thinking right. as undergrad because teachers are kind of old. Um, so I and, and so I like that idea, and also I had you know there was the, the necessity to make money. So even though I kind of was interested in art and wanted to be an artist, I knew it's like oh I can't make a living uh, doing that, or it's like you know I can wait tables by day and you know make paintings in the attic by night. And I didn't want that lifestyle, so I thought okay, right. design design kind of makes sense. So my undergraduate uh, degree from Western was I had a dual major. I had a BFA in graphic design and photography, and then I, uh, as a major, and then as a minor, I had a philosophy minor. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, so I was I was interested in ideas, right? Yeah. And stuff like that, but then I all, and I was interested in art, and but I had the necessity of making a living. So like so many other people who were, you know, come from, have a sort of creative interest, but don't want to uh, be uh, an artist or be, I actually, I didn't want to be in the art world either. I mean, I, my exposure to that made it clear to me that I had no interest in, in fine art in the art world. Yeah. Um, uh, Cause it's very problematic on a number of levels. Um, so that, so that's okay. so very very so even from my undergrad having having really good undergrad teachers like uh, Bruce Naftel and, and Janie Moore was another uh, great uh, undergrad teacher, and then I had good uh, Dick Kevney. He was an artist, uh, an art teacher, but he taught art history at the time. There was of course no such thing as design history, but he was extremely sympathetic to design and designers and he tried to incorporate that into his art history. So I, I kind of lucked out. It was a very good undergrad experience and I think that, those sort of shaped my idea. While I was, like I had just gotten uh, graduated and I went with Bruce Aftel and um, my then you know, girlfriend who's also in the design program uh, we we made a trip and we visited Cranbrook because Wolfgang okay. Weingarten was, was lecturing there. Oh wow! And I was a huge Wolfgang fan. I did my my I did my major one of my major sort of undergrad design projects was this poster about Wolfgang Weingarten. I just thought he was like the coolest. So Bruce knew, knew that, and he heard that Wolfgang was like one of Wolfgang's first trips to the U.S. was stopping at Cranbrook and giving a lecture. Oh wow! So. Um, so as an undergrad, I went and visited Cranbrook to see Wolfgang. Yeah. That's how I also learned, first learned about, about Cranbrook and I got to see my hero, uh, Wolfgang Weingart. So yeah, that's how those things. That's kind of wow. That's, happened. that's actually kind of, kind of amazing and kind of funny. Uh, I, I just picture you being, you know, kind of 1920 being a Wolfgang Weingart, just like super fan traveling to go see him talk i was a super fan yeah. then he hit on my girlfriend oh no yeah <laughs> you know it's like when your hero like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's on your girlfriend it's like... <laughs> wow wow yeah yeah i'm but yeah. In the 80s, that's what that's what teachers did back then uh, was, yeah. <laughs> right 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 it was a different time you know it was kind of expected you were like the famous european designer traveling visiting the school so yeah I'm I'm curious though the the I know I said that last question is my last kind of question about your background but I'm curious about that minor in philosophy and you saying you were interested in ideas were you at the time seeing any connection between kind of the things you were reading in your philosophy classes with 
the design work that you were studying? Not really. Okay. No. That was at that time, we're talking about in the 80s. Uh, no, that was been too big of a leap at that point. Okay. Did that ever, did that ever come back together for you? Um, yeah, but much later, much later than it was, it was, but at that time it was, you know, graphic design was, was, uh, it's something you did for clients. It was, there was a very specific idea of what design was. And it was now because of, I have to say, thanks to people like me, you know, we have our autonomy and it's, and it's seen as cultural practice and all that. Yeah. But Certainly, when I was my under, that none of that was the case. That in fact, it was the opposite. You know, you had people like you know, Massimo Vanelli or Paul Rand or whoever saying, you know, design is not art, and there's a clear demarcation, and you know, blah blah right. blah, and design, you know. So that way, you you have to understand that way of thinking just did not exist and hadn't existed in design. So well, that would have been too big of a leap. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's exactly why I was curious, because as somebody who came to design basically post-immigrate, post-90s critical theory boom. Yeah, once everything was allowed, lucky you. Right, right. So I was curious kind of what that was like for you as someone who was working pre that and then to experience that and to, to be a part of that discourse you know, it's easy for me to look back at that time, and I've, I've said this to multiple people with kind of rose-tinted glasses. It's like, oh, that's the best time for design criticism. What What are your thoughts on, on that, on kind well, of working it actually, before it actually that? Was a cool, it actually was a cool time, and it was a real moment because a yeah. whole bunch of factors, a whole bunch of things happened and came together. And, of course, at the time, I didn't quite realize it. In After my undergrad experience and just going into Cranbrook, um, that would still be early, um, early to mid eighties. I thought, Oh God, I live in such a crappy time. This is such an uninteresting moment that I had to be born in. And I just thought it was like not an interesting time in the early eighties. I quickly kind of figured out roughly about just after graduating Cranbrook. And then by then the computers came along, internet, blah, blah, blah. Then I, I by then I kind of got, Oh no, wait, this actually is an interesting time. And it's an interesting uh-huh. time for design you know, that I was wrong. Because I was thinking, you know, I was like when I went into Cranbrook and, and looking at design history and everything, I thought, oh, mid-century, that was so cool. You know, mid-century yeah. modernism was so cool. Like they had modernism, the Europeans laid down modernism in the 20s and et cetera. And then, but then the mid-century American modernists came along and said, yeah, your modernism's cool, but we want to have fun and we want to have ideas and do more interesting stuff. And I, and I would think, yeah, that was like, that was really, that was it, the mid-century. That was like so cool. And then I thought, oh, but 80s is so not cool. Because it was, um, we were we were surviving off of what basically had wrought in the 70s, which was the professionalization of graphic design. You know, right, right. Uh, the, you know international style, corporate modernism, you know, Massimo Vanelli on one hand, Milton Glaser on the other. And yep. so like, that's what design was. And so me in the 80s looking, I'm like, ugh, this is not, you know, this yeah. is not anywhere near as fun as the mid-century modernists were, you know, and oh, boo-hoo, poor me, and why did I have to be born in, in the age of sort of commercial modernism, you know, where yeah. you can be either an international uh, uh, faux European modernist, or you can be, you know, a folksy 
uh, nostalgia, you know, uh, Americana kind of right. design. Like, so th- those were sort of the choice. And it just seemed like, ugh, you know, this is really not cool um, at the time. But like I say, by the time, once it hit like the 90s, then uh, uh, things really picked up and, uh, and I kind of realized, oh, wait, maybe this is an interesting time and there are possibilities. And, you know, and then also I was engaged in creating with Lorraine Wow, in creating a, a, a program and an idea about design at that point. And we were into it. And so, yeah, and, I, and we did realize, yeah, this is actually an interesting time. And how did that, how did that, that discourse and that kind of wide ranging theory and writing that was happening, did that change kind of how you were approaching your design work and how you thought about what you did? Yeah, that changed actually while I was at Cranbrook because okay. when I was at Cranbrook, um, like I say, I started, I was interested in ideas and it, and that's when it didn't happen in undergrad at all and then uh and then i actually after undergrad i worked for uh a couple of years as a designer um okay. and and then i went um to cranbrook to escape that but also because i'd always knew that i wanted to teach at some point and you had to have a right. master's degree to teach and i you know because of the vineguard experience i knew about cranbrook and i thought that was like the probably the school for me to go to mm-hmm. um and there uh, also back then if you wanted to be an mfa it's not like now there weren't a million choices right there was there was a handful of choices and i only applied to like cranbrook and then oddly enough i applied to kent state they had an interesting design program and i had gone there after undergrad to do a workshop with april Griman because oh, wow. she was like she was the other cool designer yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I went, so I did a workshop at, uh, uh, there, um, that they had over the summer, uh, during their summer school. And it was with April Griman and Jamie Odgers and then, uh, Rick Felicenti of Thirst, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and that's where I sort of met them and hung out with them a bit. And, uh, little did I know that it would, be sort of precursor to me eventually making it to the west coast but um right yeah that was that was just sort of um the beginning of that so all these um things happened uh, bit by bit there was not um uh you know in hindsight it, it gets abbreviated and simplified and right and right of you, course you, things uh are not as simple as they appear and there's a lot of overlap but i started um my interest in theory so as an mfa i'm studying at cranbrook and, I, and i'm interested in, in theory and ideas and so that meant back then that would be like you know looking at issues of visible language mm-hmm. and uh, really there was very little and for theory back then it was really you know like rhetoric you know tom Ockersey at RISD was doing this stuff about rhetoric and stuff like that. But I just, I just thought, oh, this is, you know, this is not happening. Design theory is like nothing, you know. But then by contrast, um, what was at the time happening in all the sort of schools and universities was the whole critical theory thing, right, right. was happening. And the invasion of the French, you know, right. and, and those ideas. And so I would go over to um, Ann Arbor to Borders Books, back when Borders was only mm. one bookstore, a bookstore in Ann Arbor, 
Oh, and wow. Borders Books was a huge, you know, great bookstore. And that was a place where you could get uh, books uh, by Roland Barth and Derrida. And you can get your Lacan there and all right. that other sort of stuff. Right. And that was also culturally in the air, too. These sort of ideas, you know, postmodernism was, was, was uh, cranking up at the time. So all of those ideas were there. And it's like, well, look, everyone else is being interesting and smart. Why can't, you know, graphic designers? Um, so that was the beginning of figuring that out and starting to talk more and more uh, about theory. Also at Cranbrook, when I was at Cranbrook, the architecture faculty was Daniel Liebskind. Oh, and wow. He's a postmodernist and a theorist. And yeah. um, just before I'd gotten there, he had edited an entire issue of Visible um, Language. And it was French Currents of the Letter. It was all about French, you know, right. theory, philosophy, oh, and, 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 and uh, language studies and all of that. So he had done that in collaboration with the design program. And he'd given lectures, and he was. Uh, very inspiring, and he brought people like Zaha Hadid and right. uh, Alto and people like that. And so architecture was very much into theory and mm -hmm. got. And also, this is at a time when there was uh, the paper architects, so there right. was a lot. There wasn't work for architects, so they were doing theoretical work, and then they were doing these incredible drawings, which were a kind of uh, a kind of. Um, mm -hmm you know, physical embodiment of all these sort of abstract theories and ideas and everything. And so that, of course, was great and, and inspiring to see, you know, the work of uh, Liebskind and Zaha Hadid and, you know, people like that. My first year, my roommate was Hani Rashid, who's a oh. designer. And, yeah. Yeah. And then and the Canadian, and he brought his, his brother, um, uh. his brother came. You know, to visit, and his brother was like this wacky industrial designer that was doing um, new stuff. So that was, um, even though I was in in uh, Michigan, <laughs> in in the sort of backwater, there was plenty of of uh, exposure to a lot of interesting right. ideas and things. And it was a very very uh, you know mid to particularly mid to late eighties was a very culturally interesting time and all yeah. this stuff is going on and i'm seeing all this like it's really cool it's interesting but then i'm looking at graphic design and going what you know it's like this is not happening in graphic design and it made no sense to me because i said it should be if anywhere it should be happening in design that's a kind of nexus of all these things of right. language and vision and like like why on earth aren't designers getting with this and and a big part of the reason why and the problem was design was a this commercial practice right it was yeah. this you know and this big you know these kind of abstract ideas and theory and all that that seemed you know designers would say no 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 that's the province of art you know and that's not for us you know that's um so that was a bit of of why back then it was sort of you know this battle it wasn't you know the the autonomy wasn't was part of that autonomy was for us to be able to think more interesting thoughts not just to like do whatever we wanted to do right i'm i'm curious i kind of want to step back a little bit and i'm curious kind of about the kind of going off of that i'm curious about the sort of end of emigre and then the kind of loss of interest in that theory and that's kind of you know when i kind of came into all of this 
and I'm curious about how that discourse has changed over the course of You're your seeing, career. When you look at this stuff in hindsight, it's this big kind of you know battle. But the other thing that's thrown into it is technology. It also became generational because you have the sort of older professionals, and then you have the young MFAs. Right. Uh, uh, MFA education is also the thing that clicked in and started happening. You know, now more and more programs are having MFAs, and there's this new thing, the MFA, and what does that mean? Um, and so that fed into it also. So, and, and then, the, like I say, in the technology, so you had all these different um, things, uh, and that, that created like a perfect storm of kind of interesting possibilities and upheaval and, you know, all that. Uh, and so that's why when you look back into that stuff of the 90s, you see all of this and go, wow, that was things were really, and that's what it was. It was sorting all of that out, basically. And it was it was an interesting time and a fun time that, that uh, just happened once. You missed it. Sorry. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to, I mean, I was going to ask, do you think that type of conversation is even possible anymore? No. No, it's because design is a different thing now, and everything's it's like, the circumstances are different. You know, I I like that that saying. You know, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there, I I don't see this the the set of extenuating circumstances happening in the same way, and also design. Uh, transformed itself into something else so it's yeah i don't see that really happening uh same way or maybe happening at all yeah because because as you were talking about that i was thinking about how about that transformation of design and how it's almost gotten so big and graphic design spans everything from you know kind of the classic logo to interface interfaces on on apps that it's almost so siloed that there isn't a, a place for something where all that comes together and then on top of that there's sort of a general wider consciousness that people understand design well that's why when you look back and you read all those things of you know in in, in emigrate there was a we you mm -hmm. see there's no we now right and, and and also there was also um, there was something at stake, you know, there was like one group, you know, the sort of, uh, international style modernist, commercial modernist, the sort of Massimo Vanellis who'd like, who'd like struggle to make design professional, you know, mm -hmm. that generation, their whole thing was to professionalize design. So they had the Aspen design conference, you know, and right. tried to explain to business, look, design is, you know, important, you know, for business and it's not just making things look better and blah, blah, blah. So there was this whole group of generation that worked very hard to sort of professionalize design. They saw this, you know, these new MFAs coming out and basically taking a wrecking ball to everything. You know, deprofessionalizing, right. letting letting the the you know the the messiness of art in, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and there was still, again, there was still a kind of we there. And so, there seemed like there was something at stake. There was something, you know, that we were all fighting for who was who was right and who had the best idea about what uh, design would be. You know, but instead yeah. of something. Well, since I guess I would say, you know, having been one of the people that fought for um, 
that fought for kind of autonomy. It's like, I got it, but then, you know, we got autonomy, but then it's like the God's punishing you by giving you what you want. It's like, okay, well, now we have this autonomy. What are we going to do with it? And I find out what we're going to do with it is we're going to make zines about our cat. Right, right. Now, that's what we're going to do with it. And it's going to be a risograph, and we're going to exchange it with our friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because I was even thinking about that autonomy when you were talking about that, and I was thinking about your global style piece, that it's also, there's now this kind of whole field in graphic design. It comes back to what you are talking about being at Cranbrook and seeing paper architecture, that there's this speculative design that is sometimes called, you know, critical design that almost, you know, has swung completely to that other direction. It has and it hasn't. See, the thing that architecture has that design doesn't as well, first of all, it's got a much longer history. Um, right. And it's so, but it's also, <laughs> there's a license, there's a professionalization of it. And there's organizations that kind of monitor the field of it, which we don't have. And there's a level of, of academic um, rigor that we also don't have. Right. Um, so there are all these other uh, things in place that, that demanded a, a pretty high level of competency in the work. Now, by contrast with design, you know, you talk about speculative design or so-called critical, which it should be called not critical. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, uh, would be the real title for that. Um, you know, is the problem is is that it just it's there's no rigor there, and mm -hmm. and there's no you know it, it literally is anything. It's what it's whatever the hell you say it is. Yeah, that's what. So and and that I find completely uninteresting. That's well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that's something that I feel like your global style piece. I don't mean to keep coming back to that. Really hit on in something that I've been thinking about a lot with this, you know, quote unquote critical design is that it all looks the same uh you know and now if a designer wants to be seen as a critical designer they just use that aesthetic and and you know now they're a critical designer you know what i mean uh, but that's, that's that's just art style that that started way back that was like already uh in the 90s and it got solidified from 2000 on it's there's an aesthetic of you know, the art world. And that's what that is. You know, yeah. it's, it's that aesthetic. It's the thing that you make art catalogs and art posters and this and that. And, you know, the art, you know, love modernism because modernism is obedient and it's tra transparent, right? And all that jazz so that it can be about the art. And so this is just the latest iteration of that. You know, it's, it's the sort of official art style. Uh, that's, you know, now they call it critical or, you know, it'll have whatever new name it needs. Um, but basically it's a kind of obedient uh, modernist transparency, you know, and, right, and yeah. it's easy to do and it's fast, you know, so that's why it's all over the world, you know. So if you have an exhibition in Fiji, I already know what it's going to look like, what the catalog will look like. Yes, and serve typeface and it'll have, yeah. How you know, it's a thing. I'm I'm curious how you I don't want to say fight against that but basically how do you fight against that as a teacher Um I I have a little experience teaching and I 
had an opportunity to critique undergrad senior theses recently, and I was surprised at how many people had how many students would start with kind of these big ideas about something that they wanted to explore through design and then through their presentation when I saw the finished product or finished project or whatever the thing was that they made, it just kind of fell into these predefined styles and seemed to have no relation to that to that idea. How do you you know, how do you think about that in a classroom setting? Do you do you see that? Well, that's always been the case, and that never goes away, that disconnect between sort of the ideas and the theory and the thing that's made, you know, that mm -hmm. disjunction. I, mean, I always think of the classic example of that is all the way back in the early days of modernism. If you read, like, text by Piet's work, mm -hmm. trained as an architect, and he talks about all the rationality and functionality and this and blah, 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 and then you look at his work, and it's like, what? You know, and he does this totally crazy-looking, you yeah. know, nutso, extremely personal stuff, but then all of his writing, all the jargon is, you know, uh, this and that. You know, Massimo was another one who, you know, towed the modernist line, you know, only five typefaces, right. you know, and all these rules. And yet this stuff ends up looking basically like the way they want it to look, you know. Right. So there's always a disjunction between, you know, the theory and what people say and then how the thing looks. And the irony is, of course, with, with modernism, the modernist idea is this whole, you know, form follows function or what, you know, people use that, that right. misquote of Louis Sullivan. But they, they, it's interpreted to mean that um, the, the forms derive their, their form from the ideas. You know, you have an idea, you have a concept, and then that's what is the engine that drives the form. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of how it's supposed to be. But yet it's like, well, you all have a zillion different ideas, and yet the forms all end up looking the same. So we know that's not true. That right. that's not actually that's not actually what's happening. That's that's not, and it hasn't been. It's never been. <laughs> There's always been that yeah. uh, disconnect. I thought actually when it was trying to be connected was actually in the 90s when you had all this postmodern sort of deconstructed work, and everyone was like, oh, this work is like a nightmare, and you know, layering, and it's hard right. to read, and so that. But I was like. Well, actually, but guess what? It was very, it was actually was sort of connected to ideas and you could see it and you could trace it. Um, so there was a brief moment when it kind of was starting to happen, but it scared people. And so it went away. We're back to good old modernism. Do you, I, I'm going to, I want to change gears a little bit. Do, do you see the work that you, you're writing? Do you, do you think of that as criticism? Um, well, uh, some of it is, but not all of it is. When I, I think of, I, I first think of like theory as the overall category. So okay. within theory, within theory, there's, there's, um, uh, methodology. That's, you know, I have it in three parts. Methodology, which is people now refer to process. It means okay. how you do something. Yeah. And process can be literally the, you know, like a uh, YouTube tutorial about how to use some software, you know, that's like a process, or it can be the process of how you analyze and think about ideas and break down a course of action or whatever. So there's sort of process and how to is one section, mm -hmm. then there's a criticality, which is once something is done, or if you're thinking about doing something, how do you think about it? Uh, 
critically uh, to have a course of action um, that would then drive that methodology, you know, because right. process is just how you do something, but methodology is your plan to instigate how you do something, you know, and it's like science. You have a kind of, you have a, 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 a theory and you have an idea of what you're doing and, and what the possible outcomes are and et cetera, et cetera. And then, then there's pure theory, which is just um, uh, like philosophy. It's more, it's just pure thinking and pure, you know, a theory of ideas and right. that sense. So there's like, those, to me, there's like those um, three camps and, and they're a little bit mixed. One goes here and one um, goes there, but critical writing and critical theory is just one. The other is all about process and methodology. That's another whole section. And then pure theory is the other. So they okay. tend to get mixed and people tend to use, you know, big words like, you know, uh, criticism or theory or whatever. And you don't always know which one they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I asked is because I've been trying to just for myself better articulate those differences between and so I was curious kind of how you thought about the writing that 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 you do um, yeah well, I break it down into those three groups when I started I started teaching uh theory actually at Cal Arts well uh, it was 2000 uh 2001 I think when I uh started the first and I taught uh, a couple of different theory classes for uh, about a decade or so. Actually, before that, the very first theory course I taught was Sheila de Bretville hired me to teach theory at Otis. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it was one class, and it was it was, it was kind of uh, it was it was crazy teaching theory to a bunch of people who did not want it. Um, uh, but it, it was interesting because she said, "No, let's try this. I want you to sort of articulate what's going on now in the oh, world and put together a, a sort of reading list that would be accessible." And yeah, that was interesting. It wasn't a hundred percent successful. I think <laughs> most of the students hated it. Um, and then it, it took me a few years, and it was like in two thousand and one is when I started uh, a couple of theory courses at CalArts, and, and I eventually broke it into two theory courses, Theory 1 Theory 2. So Theory 1 uh, was just a history of theories. So it was basically readings starting with uh, Ruskin, going from Ruskin to Emigre, basically. Oh, wow. So it was an overview and a history of theories. Uh, so that was that, and then theory two was all contemporary. Was like what what people are saying and writing about now, um, and and so those were the sort of two theory courses. Oh, that sounds that great, for, actually. Yeah, well, you missed it. I did that for about <laughs> ten years or so, and we we still we have a theory course now, um, which uh, Louise, uh, you talked to Louise. Yep. Louise Sandhouse teaches theory now, okay, and so she teaches the theory course, but she does it, you know. It's, of course, we've been, you know, doing it for a couple decades. So it's evolved over time and, mm -hmm. and it's become, a, um, as things do, a very, uh, a very different thing. But, uh, yeah, I, one problem with design theory is, and, and the Looking Closer series kind of tried to address that, is you, you really do have to have, to some extent, you have to establish a little bit of a canon or something. Yeah. So you have a vocabulary and that you can use to have a conversation you it's you can't just you know sit down with a bunch of designers and say okay let's talk theory you know right um, right 
that doesn't work. So it unfortunately requires a degree of literacy that very few people have. Well, well, and that's, yeah, that was what I was wanting to ask you next, actually, was, was and we talked a little bit before we started recording uh, about this, but, you know, there seems to be, this is a blanket statement, but there seems to be this kind of general not interest in theory in the design community or a certain, you know, anti-intellectualism, for lack of a better word. And I'm, I'm curious, two, two questions. One, why do you think that that is? And then what value a theoretical discourse could and can bring to the design profession? Well, I would say first uh, that 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 lack of criticality or the the, the, the sort of anti-intellectual that's not specific to graphic design. That's everybody, Jared. Right, like, right. And also, newsflash: people aren't terribly smart either. <laughs> in general, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's not any. That's not at all specific to design. So that's that's okay, the. Right. Well, have you have? Are you aware of the president we have? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not you know that's not a design that's not a design problem. Actually. That is a very that's, good that's, point. Actually, it's a problem of human beings. Yeah, that's what that problem is. The other question, <laughs> um, which is about yeah. so so is it of use and value or or something important to design? Um, I would say it is if it is to you. Mm. See, that's the problem. So, but to a lot of people, it isn't. You know, and there are some people that it is uh, important and that it is of value too. Right. But then, and then also that connects and, and speaks to a larger thing of if there is such a thing as a we, you know, or a right. design culture, then it obviously would be important to that. But there's a big question now as to whether there really is a we or there is a design culture as such. Do you? Do you think that there's a value then in I'm, – I'm kind of flipping the question a little bit because uh, we've been talking a lot about this writing and this discourse as a sort of inside baseball kind of by and for designers. Do you think there's value in having a graphic design critic, for example, at the New York Times? You know, having the, something that's kind of outward looking that's talking about these things? Well, yeah. I mean, we're maybe late to get it. Um, yeah. There's, you know, in Europe, they've had, you know, popular press, you know, about design and design. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, and they talk about it. Right. You know, Gerard Unger for years wrote mm. a newspaper column about typefaces. Right. In the newspaper. And they're really, um, they're really interesting and really clever, but, but, you know, obviously very sort of accessible, but it was all just about typefaces and type design. It was just for the newspaper. Um, so yeah, there's definitely, uh, a place, a place for that. But I also think designers have to insist on it, it, it for years. Whenever we would see something like in the New York times or somewhere, someone would mention like, Oh, such they would write, on and on and on about some book and say, oh, and the design is really interesting. It's fabulous, blah, blah, blah. And never mention who the designer was. Right. You know, that would be typical for you. Now, at least we've gotten past that. And yeah. most people realize if you talk about design, it's authored. 
you know, that a right. designer actually did it. So we're, we're kind of past that hump, but, but just barely past that. I keep seeing tons of anonymous sort of design everywhere and people talking about design in really anonymous terms. So it's, I'm, I'm not sure how far we've come from that, but it's, it would really require an, an insistence on the part of the designers that design is talked about in more interesting and responsible way. I mean, people don't write about architecture that way, and they don't because architects wouldn't let them. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that leads into perfectly my next question, which is uh, kind of, I just have a couple questions to kind of just wrap everything up. But what you just said leads into, this is a question that I've asked everybody. Um, and it's kind of, what are the the subjects that design critics should be writing about right now or design theorists should be writing about what are the big issues in in graphic design right now that maybe are under theorized or or need to have a a spotlight turned to them well i i think the first thing is that people you know keep doing it and try to (laughs) try and do it well and not just like you know just um do tweets and instagram or whatever right that they actually first it requires the the activity the engagement you know whether it's written or it's you know podcast or or whatever it is but as far as you know the ideas or the the subject i actually think that disciplinarity is the key issue as being and having seen us go from being uh an overly uh conscripted sort of uh um practice and discipline to one of the exact opposite now where you know literally you know you're a graphic designer if you design a risograph zine or a 400 page catalog for uh, or you know where and both of those things are graphic designers and you're also a graphic designer if you do ui ux or whatever you know so it's just become so big that it's hard to have a very sensible conversation about it in so I think uh, a, a big issue is kind of disciplinary, you know, a disciplinary issue and like what is the design discipline and what are we talking about when we talk about design? Right. Um, because since it's gotten so big, uh, people don't know what they're talking about yeah. anymore. And and it's just too – so I think um, also the issue of, of – you know, in the in the art world, for example, there's you know there's paintings at the local art fair. You know, watercolors, you know, like my mom does, and they, you know, <laughs> yeah, and they, yeah. they sit under an umbrella and sell them. And then there's also you know there's also you know Damien Hirst art right. and showing it. You know, the big big uh, show he's just opening. So there's there's different levels of art. And art practice. There's different levels of literature and literature practice. There's kind of only one level of design practice. Hmm. It's all kind of exists in this kind of uh, middle brow, you know, everywhere, everything. Um, There are different practices of architecture. You know, there's the architects that are sort of local and do your homes and do business and this and that. And then there's, you know, the Frank Gehrys and the Morphosis and Zaha Hadid and all that. So that operates at very, very different levels, and they have their own level of, of, of discourse. Uh, graphic design hasn't done that, hasn't differentiated itself into mm-hmm. these different groups or levels. So so it's we're kind of 
stuck being populist and being everything to everyone. And so there's kind of, you, you would, I think there has to be some disciplinarity in order to get out of that. You know, there has to be, if there's going to be a kind of, for people who are interested in having a kind of uh, smart conversation about design, it's obviously going to be a smaller group, but the terms have to be defined and it has to exist somewhere. Um, and that's, you know, they're, you know, basically the, the, you know, a kind of high end or an elite, um, aspect to design, which, which kind of, for a lot of people, it's like, well, but that's not what design is, right? That right. flies in the field of design, that design is pop and populist. And certainly a lot of designers, that's why they like design and they have no interest in a kind of, of, uh, more rarefied, uh, right. practice or way of thinking of design. They're just not interested in that. You know, so yeah. the, the the first thing I would say is sort of disciplinarity is, is 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 right now it's just kind of a mess. So even when you you know uh, see things like the you know design observer, you know trying to kind of negotiate that, mm-hmm. it, it's very confusing because uh, you're never quite sure where you're standing right. um, in that. And so I think. Yeah, for me that is the that is the big question, and and in a way it's the failing of of um, academia because you know the that kind of level of discourse and the high end and all that uh, it's the job of academia right. to to create that space, and they didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. I found a lot of the people that end up listening to these are educators or academics and i think you know i'm i don't want to speak for them but i think part of it is that sense also that sense that 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 we need some of that differentiation a little bit well there was a brief moment where you know that's what kind of the emigrate kind of did which was interesting that it but it was a commercial you know commercial vehicle a commercial business or practice that set up that space for that mm-hmm. conversation as briefly as it happened. Yeah. I think I think people hoped and people wanted dot 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 to be it next to right. be the next right. thing. But it didn't really work out that way. Um, at least I didn't think it worked out that way. Yeah. Um, and also didn't last that uh, long either. And I just remember, you know, Rudy and I at, at the end were all saying, well we wonder you know, what will be next or who will, you know, fill this void or whatever. And, and instead it just kind of disappeared. Right. Just yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, and that's something that was the, the other thing I was curious about is do, how much do you keep up with a kind of current design discourse? Are there places that you're turning for this kind of thing or, or does it just not really exist for you anymore? I, I find bits and pieces here and there, but, you know, it's kind of random and it's people, you know, writing and having thoughts in all these sort of disparate places. And there are also different kind of practices that, right. you, know, you know, the other thing that's happened is design has really changed and become something else. Right. You know, right. It, it, the, the, at that time, it was much easier to talk about design with a capital D because it was primarily print design, and everybody knew that. And design practice hadn't changed for about a hundred years, you know. It, it, and and so, but after that, it all changed. You know, the the graphic design that Dwiggins was talking about yeah. kind of 
doesn't exist right. anymore. Right. And he coined the term, and because so many things happened, you know that and that that graphic design was separate from uh, marketing and advertising. Well, sort of marketing, advertising, commercial uh, art kind of incorporated itself into design, or I would say swallowed it up, mm-hmm. so that. Like when I studied and started to be a graphic designer after my undergrad, it w- I, I wasn't in, at all interested in advertising. And we right. saw advertising and all of that as a completely different discipline. Yeah. You know, by the time we get to like, say, Emin Company, where you see Tibor Collin like with a foot in both sides mm-hmm. doing sort of design, but also doing advertising or say Durantal Doyle Partners or people like, there was this sort of moment where it started to switch over. Now everything's totally integrated. There, there is no, no, with branding, branding is yeah. the ultimate integration of advertising into design. So there's no uh, separation and now there's no separation in the media and you just see this thing, it's, it's, it, that's a different thing than that thing Dwiggins was talking about. It's right. become something else. So I really think of graphic design as essentially a 20th century phenomenon. It's something that happened in the 20th century. Um, but this thing we do now, we still call it graphic design in the 21st century. You know, we still call it graphic yeah. design. I think it's something else. Yeah, it's and it's also this thing of design moving from in the twentieth century. Design was essentially concerned with objects, with made things. Right, right. You know, in the twenty first century, not so much, and all these other uh, aspects. And 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 so, so, yeah, I I, I think graphic design ended with the twentieth century. <laughs> That's <laughs> We're so- doing- something else i mean that's so interesting i'm so mad that you bring this up right at the end of our conversation because i could talk to you about it design is over uh my i do have one final question for you that's completely different and i'm just curious you know maybe outside of the design world who are the writers or the critics are there people that have really influenced the way you think about design or the way you think about your own writing uh yeah that's kind of hard because there's a ton of people who've influenced me and who i think about and you know some of them very direct of course my colleagues ed and lorraine you know always had a huge influence on my thinking uh ed fell in lorraine wild Mm -hmm. in case you don't know um uh so there's you know people the sort of real people, all the tons of sort of colleagues and students, you know, on a kind of real level. Uh, in terms of, of theoretical and reading, um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to sound terrible. I'm a fan of Nietzsche. Uh, okay. Yeah. No way. That, uh, that's, uh, I shouldn't have even said it. That's going to, like, do me in. Okay, but, this, you know, from, from way back, from sort of yeah. um, the – the old days of first studying um, philosophy, and, and that still kind of holds true. And of course, uh, Roland Barthes was a right. huge influence to me because that was basically this uh, mashup between culture yeah. and philosophy, right? And language. You know, you got culture, philosophy, language, and oh, all the things I love, kind of all all rolled up and, and done in a kind of poetic, expressive way. Too, he brought that yeah. to the table. So that was so Barth was was in some ways more in a influential than the kind of hardcore but really fascinating deconstructive intellectual practice of say someone like Derrida yeah right? yeah that's it's interesting there. it's interesting because I'm reading Barth's uh 
collected essays. I think it's called Image Text Music right now. Oh, and, text. Yeah, and and I, as I was reading that, I was also preparing to talk to you and and was noticing a lot of similarities in, in the way of kind of breaking down images and things. So um, I, I totally see that now that you say that. Yeah, yeah no, he was really influential um, in my um, Cranbrook days. Because like I say, the only place you could buy his books too was over in Ann Arbor, Borders yeah. Books. And now, of course, you can get any idea at all you want while you're waiting in line at Starbucks. Right. But back then, it was sort of hard to get access to um, that kind of uh, thinking. But to pull it back more to design, I would say one thing I try to, and it's also a hard sell, I try to tell um, students um, about is uh, a lot of 19th century writers, mm. which I actually think might possibly might in a new way resonate for the 21st century. Um, so even though, uh, even though this is going to be my pitch that, that never, I, I never make a sale. Uh, <laughs> Ruskin, I want people to read Ruskin, even okay. though um, he's, he's, it's a slog because he writes in this, you know, yeah. awful 19th century language and, and everything. But what, what you have and what I like about Ruskin is here's a guy who's sort of, first getting it and putting it all together about sort of design aesthetics society mm -hmm. history he's like he's like he's like getting it that all of these things are connected and relevant and that you have to think about these things if you're going to make a worthwhile society and you have to understand so he's like the first guy who kind of like got that right and yeah. put it all together for designers so i really think of him as really being one of the very first important okay. um design writers so but he's a hard slog because his writing is like torture you yeah know? yeah i've um, dipped my toe into ruskin so I, I will give him give him another chance really have to work on it but he also has some incredibly uh poetic uh, uh ways of 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 playing with um ideas um so he mm -hmm. so I, I it's like i yeah it's a hard sale but instead of uh him you know the sort of easier version would be someone like dresser mm. um uh, um yeah dr dresser he can call himself he did some uh interesting writing lf day another 19th century okay. writer um someone who's kind of made it in the 20th century but his whose ideas are really still 19th century is louis sullivan i think louis sullivan's oh. I and writing yeah. also very good you know he's the cool guy who said form follows function but he right. meant meant it very differently than how we right. if you read it carefully you'll understand what he meant was a lot more uh inclusive and subtle than the way designers translate it now if you ask most designers they'll say that's a quote by gropius and they'll right. say that it's you know blah, blah. but if you get to some of louis sullivan's original ideas that and those were the ideas that drove frank lloyd wright Right. And that yeah. drove sort of this kind of new modern Americanism, you know, modern American design aesthetic, you know, right. uh, really sort of came from Louis Sullivan. And Louis Sullivan was a kind of reinterpretation of kind of European ideas. So, yes, in a very long winded way, I guess I'm saying I would try and encourage people to look into some of the early 19th century writers that were just waking up to this idea of what yeah. design was and what design thinking was in a very in very very sort of broad terms and i think somehow that might actually have ways of resonating with the 21st century that's interesting 
I, I, I know you said you've never made a sale, but I think, I think I kind of want to give that a try because I actually that I I'm only fami partially familiar with some of those. So I think, yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. They're not going to be big sellers. Not <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this is not going to catch on. This is not going to be a big wave that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's yeah. not going to be a thing. Yeah. It's definitely not. But I find, yeah, I would find that interesting uh, rather than, yeah. than say any of the sort of, you know, modernist, uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, writers and great. Out of all of the modernists, maybe one person who I think is, is interesting because he's sometimes crackpot is Otto Eicher's writings. Oh, yeah. uh, his analog and digital, um, I find a really interesting book. It's a little bit sort of crackpotty, but he's um, he was an interesting thinker and, and and also interesting practitioner because he was a very commercial. You know, he was sort of like a, a sort of German Paul Rand, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he but he taught and all that, but but um, a Paul Rand who was maybe more thoughtful um, than our our <laughs> our very commercial Paul Rand, right? My like, way or the highway. Um, yeah. So uh, so yeah, I guess I would I would look into writers like that, but I do believe in reading uh, graphic design writers. You know, it's too easy to say, oh, well, read about, you know, read Tarkovsky and about mm -hmm. his films. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, gee, you're really, really smart. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing is, right. is it's like, no, read graphic designers, people who are practitioners, people, I think, I think that um, is important because that also uh, grounds it very much in design practice. And it's like, yeah, of course, there's a million, you know, wise guys and gals out there one could read and look at and say, you know, you like the ideas, but that's, it's, it's a, it's a big jump to connect that to design. There's, there's actually a, a you know, um, the looking closer, just like was the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of good writing by, um, designers that people just have ignored. Yeah. Are there, are there any, I know I said that last question was my last question, but are there any contemporary designers or design writers that you think are kind of, you're really enjoying or, or you think they're kind of doing it, doing it right? Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, there's there's some who are I there there I I can't like once I start naming I have to like name all of my right. yeah, students, yeah. <laughs> right. um, but there are people who are trying and they have to be you know such as yourself right mm -hmm. so credit has to be given for people that are trying you know um, right. but it it takes a while I mean you're only talking to me because I wrote for twenty years <laughs> you know yeah so. That's, yeah. that's, it takes a while. So it, to ask the question, I think there, you know, there are some interesting people who are starting to write stuff, but, but also I'm sure there are some that I don't know of and haven't right. heard of. Thank you so much for this conversation. I hope this was interesting for you also. This was really interesting for me. We've, we've killed graphic design in a way. Um, uh, yes, but yeah, let it rest in peace. <laughs> It's always some old guy who's going to say, now that I'm done, it's over. Right, you know? right. So they, it's like, they, like, what else could I say? It's like, oh, yeah, I'm done, so it's, it's over. Yeah. 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 But I really, I, I really do appreciate this conversation. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you so much for, for being a part of this. 
No problem. Good luck to you. This episode was recorded on June 8th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.